we are journeying through um, the Bible, just doing a survey, book by book through the Bible. And today's message, um, a message on Jeremiah, is pretty harsh. Jeremiah's message is harsh. Uh, let me give you a little bit of background for that. The, the message that the, that the prophets are preaching is called the Palestinian Covenant. The Palestinian Covenant, found in its most clear, simple form in Leviticus chapter 26, um, it, it governs life in the land. When, when the Israelites are in the land, here's how things are going to go for them. And it was said at the very beginning, when they're getting ready to enter in the land, after they've gotten the law at Mount Sinai, and it, they are told this, obedience will bring blessing. Disobedience will bring discipline. And repentance will bring restoration. That's the message the prophets, all 17 of them, are preaching. They are preaching that same message. Now, their emphasis will change. Um, Last week, we looked at Isaiah, and Isaiah has a little bit of that, come on, folks, if you'll just obey, God will bless you. Jeremiah is 150 years later. The opportunity for obedience to bring blessing is in the past. His focus is on repentance bringing restoration, or discipline bringing, disobedience bringing discipline. That's the focus of his message. 52 chapters, most of it is discipline is coming because you have been disobedient. Very little of Jeremiah, although there are four chapters, but very little of Jeremiah has that repentance brings restoration. Um, The the repentance brings restoration in the different prophets expresses itself as God's not finished with you as a nation. He's going to bring you back. That restoration is going to happen under Ezra and Nehemiah. But it also has this restoration to being the full people of God that will await the coming of Christ. And so the the prophets are going to look forward to that. But Jeremiah in particular is, is really focused On that middle section, disobedience brings discipline. And because of that, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Um, He weeps. There's there's a lot of insight into who he is and kind of his emotional state through this book. Um, He weeps because of the message. He weeps because of the lack of response of the people. Um, In 40 years, no one responds to him. He has no converts after 40 years. Um, This is Michelangelo's picture of of Jeremiah downtrodden, and he's the weeping prophet. Um, Yesterday, Dawn and I were talking because I I mentioned the the message I'm going to talk about in just a second, Um, and and she just said how often God brings these things to me in in the right timing. I'll I'll, I'll hear a message, and it just fits. Um, That happened to me this past week, and and I want to encourage all of you to listen to a message by Christy Allen. It's a Dallas Seminary Chapel message. After the introduction, 16 minutes. You can do it. By the way, don't get any ideas with this 16-minute message stuff, okay? Not going there. But she does an amazing job in 16 minutes. And her message is on tears and the mission of God. Um, She basically says this, we should expect tears because we live in a fallen world. Loving God, loving others, loving the lost, that's going to produce tears in our life because it's difficult. Um, because it, it calls for repentance, and God shows us difficulty. Loving others isn't always easy. Loving the lost, they may not respond. We should expect tears, and we should express our tears, because Jesus himself wept. Lament is a biblical category, and mourning leads to comfort. Um, 
It's a great message. I've listened to it three times now. I encourage you to listen to it. And at the end, she just talks about we can anticipate joy when we really embrace tears and mourning. So I want to tell you, here's who should listen to this message. If you feel like you cry too much, this message is for you, okay? If you're just wondering, man, I cry a lot. I don't know why. This message will orient you and you'll kind of go, okay, man, maybe I get it. Maybe, maybe there's a good reason for me to cry, okay? Maybe you don't cry at all. This message is for you too. Maybe it'll free you up to cry. Um, my last category is just listen to the message, everybody. It's just really, really good. Um, and it fits this idea of what's going on with Jeremiah, who is weeping over what's going on in the world. Uh, I have a link to it on the uh, website. You can either watch it, you can watch her deliver the message, you can listen to it as a podcast. Uh, I've got some other resources out there at the connection table. Um, one of them is, is really an applicational message. It's by Roy Zook on, on being like Jeremiah, who hung tough in tough times, okay? Um, I've got another one that is the historical background. If you're into that, if you're kind of like, hey, I'd like to know what's going on with all these different countries and how does this fit, um, that's there. There's another handout um, that is the timeline because Jeremiah is very much not chronological. There, there's just, you cannot flow from, okay, this happens, this happens. It's not sequential. You just got to get over it if that's what you're looking for. And this timeline will kind of put some of this together because what, what Jeremiah will do is he'll deliver a message and then you'll hear another message and then he'll jump to the end when all of it has been fulfilled and, and Jerusalem has been destroyed. Then he goes back to preaching and one guy will be king and the next guy will be king and you're like, oh, that guy hasn't been king yet. And it, it's a collection of his messages and this timeline might help you follow it through. The other thing that's going on in this book, and I have a resource for you, is Jerusalem is destroyed by the end of this book. Um, he's, he's announcing the Babylonians are coming to destroy Jerusalem. Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is, is destroyed. And a lot of people might have a question of, okay, well, if that's true, what happened to the Ark of the Covenant? Well, let me tell you, first of all, Indiana Jones has not discovered the Ark of the Covenant. He didn't find it. In fact, nobody found it. There's an article out there. If you're curious, what in the world's going on with the Ark of the Covenant? This article, one page will help you. Um, there's some interesting stories about it, but it's not out there. Here's, folks, the Babylonians melted that thing down, and they used the gold to create some other stuff. There's no more Ark of the Covenant, and that's okay. No more temple, no more Ark of the Covenant. That's okay because, as you'll see in this book, we don't need a temple. We don't need the Ark of the Covenant. We've got the Holy Spirit because we're the temple, and the Holy Spirit is dwelling within us. There's not an Ark in a building in Jerusalem. There's the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, and that's way better. All those resources are out there. Let me give you a little bit of a summary of what's going on in the book of Jeremiah. We're going to do some background. We're going to look at it, and then I'm just going to walk you through it. Here's what Bruce Wilkinson says. Jeremiah is the autobiography of one of Judah's greatest prophets during the nation's darkest days. Apostasy, idolatry, perverted worship, moral decline. These were the conditions under which Jeremiah lived and ministered. Sound familiar? It's relevant for us. An avalanche of judgment is coming, and Jeremiah is called to proclaim the message faithfully for 40 years. And he does proclaim it faithfully for 40 years, but no one listens, and judgment comes. In response to his sermons, the tender prophet of God experiences intense sorrows at the hands of his countrymen, oppositions, beatings, isolations, imprisonment. 
But though rejected and persecuted, Jeremiah lives to see many of the prophecies come true. The Babylonian army arrives, vengeance falls, and God's holiness and justice are vindicated, though it breaks the prophet's heart. He's going to tell them this judgment is coming. And during the book, you're going to see the judgment comes. After the judgment comes, what we're going to look at next week in the book of Lamentations is five chapters of Jeremiah lamenting, oh my gosh, look, the judgment has come. From the beginning of the book to the end of the book, almost everything changes. At the beginning of the book, you start with Josiah, who was a good king. Um, Josiah and Jeremiah kind of live together. They're, they're almost the same age. But then eventually, not too long into Josiah's life, he dies. And, and everybody by the end of the book is, is in total regression. So there's a revival at the beginning under Josiah, but by the end, it's turned around. At the beginning of the book, Assyria is in power. At the end of the book, Babylonia is in power. At the beginning of the book, the Jews are in the promised land. At the end of the book, the Jews are out of the land. At the beginning of the book, Jeremiah is in Jerusalem preaching. At the end of the book, he's in Egypt. He eventually may end up in Babylon. We don't know for sure, but he's definitely not in Jerusalem anymore. At the beginning of the book, he's preaching to the whole nation. At the end of the book, there's just a little crowd that's listening to him. And they're not even responsive. (laughs) At the beginning of the book, there's someone on David's throne. In fact, there's a few. Josiah, um, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, Zedekiah. Those guys are all on David. But by the end of the book, there's nobody on David's throne. There's a guy named Gedaliah who's put in uh, power, and then he gets murdered. Everything changes by the end of this book. It's a real turnaround. Uh, Jeremiah is one of the prophets to the southern kingdom of Judah, okay? He's about 150 years after Isaiah and Micah. There's some other prophets, Hosea, Joel, who have prophesied in the northern kingdom of Israel. And Jeremiah has a few other prophets that are prophesying around his time. But Jeremiah is this huge book um, that is mostly mostly judgment is coming. Um, And here's basically the very beginning, and it gives you everything you need to know. The words of Jeremiah, son of Helkiah, one of the priests, Jeremiah is part of a priestly family, at Anathoth in in the territory of Benjamin, about 10 miles north of Jerusalem, the word of the Lord came to him in the 13th year of the reign of Josiah, good king, uh, son of Ammon, bad king, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, bad king, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the 11th year of Zedekiah, bad king, son of Josiah, his, those two guys are brothers, um, king of Judah, while the people of Jerusalem went into exile. So it, it covers about 40 years from Josiah, a good king, three bad kings, one of them is not listed here, until the nation goes into exile. The first three verses kind of give you this is all that's going on. Um, it starts in 626, and it's going to go until about 586. Um, Jeremiah is going to live a few years after that. He's taken into Egypt and, and maybe taken into, into Babylon. Here's the next verses. The word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you uh, in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Um, the prophets have a call. If, if you've heard what I've said so far, the message that Jeremiah has, no one signs up for this. No one signs up to deliver this message to kings and priests who God tells you is not going to listen to you, and no one's been listening for 150 years. He wouldn't want this job. But God had called him, notice, 
from the womb, he was known. Before he was born. This is a key verse in a contemporary issue related to the rights of the unborn. God knew them in the womb. God knows people in the womb. There's a relationship. God has a purpose for them. The rights of the unborn are something we should fight for because God had a relationship and a call on the life of Jeremiah in the womb. And, and I encourage you, um, make yourself familiar with what's going on in, in this abortion debate in our culture right now because it's changing radically. More than half of the abortions that take place in our country take place with a pill that you can order online. More abortions take place with a pill than take place in a doctor's office now. It's that simple. The battle is, is getting very, very intense. Uh, this fall, we're going to host the Life Choices Banquet here at Fellowship. I encourage you to be a part of that. And make yourself aware of what this debate is about at this point. But this verse is one of the key verses that just says, fighting for the life of the unborn and the rights of the, uh, the unborn um, is very important. It's clearly here in this verse. Um, if you keep reading in chapter 1, here's a sample of the message that Jeremiah is giving. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you see? I see a pot that's boiling, I answered. It is tilting toward us from the north. The Lord said to me, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I'm about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgment on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods, and in worshiping what their hands have made. 16 verses in, man, he's given it to them. This, this message starts with some judgment. <laughs> what do you see? There's a pot boiling, and it's tilting toward us. That boiling water's coming our way. And he says, yeah, that boiling water, it's the invading army of the Babylonians. It's coming your way. And, and look at, at why. Because of their wickedness in forsaking me and burning incense to other gods and worshiping what their hands have made. I want to just highlight what's going on here. Wickedness, that's their behavior. And particularly what, what, what Jeremiah is going to highlight is social injustice. They weren't taking care of the rights of the people who could, didn't have rights themselves. The poor, the disadvantaged. In fact, they were taking advantage of them rather than assisting them. They had forsaken him. Their allegiance uh, was not singular. They had worshiped other gods, idolatry. There were other priorities in their life. And, and the, the last phrase is fascinating to me. They're depending on what their hands have made. Their security was, was self-sufficient. Hey, I've got a comfortable house, a good job, a nice retirement. I'm fine. I don't need any of that other stuff. Their dependence on what, was, on what their hands had made. In chapter 2, he's going to put it this way. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold water. They have forsaken the, the spring of living water. They have, they have turned away from the real source of life. They've turned away from God, who could give them satisfaction. But, but look what they've done. And they've made their own, what their hands have made, they've dug a cistern for themselves, thinking, hey, if I do this, if I do it my way, this is going to satisfy me. But that cistern cannot hold water. Folks, think about this. <laughs> you, you may not feel like you've turned from the Lord 
But where are you looking for satisfaction? And is it satisfying? How's it working out for you? Depending on the cisterns that you have dug. Um, He's pretty clear in what he's bringing to them. Back in chapter 1, Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, I've put my words in your mouth. By the way, again, Jeremiah is not going to go, hey, I'm just thinking maybe I'll bring a harsh message. No, God puts the words in his mouth. See, today I appoint you over the nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Four words that are pretty negative. Uproot, tear down, destroy, overthrow. A lot of that in this book. Build up and plant, just four chapters. So how does all this develop? What's, what's going on in this book? Who's, who's delivering it? Um, when is this? Where is all of this? And why is this in our Bible? Who composed Jeremiah? Jeremiah, often called the weeping prophet because of, his, because of the insights the book gives us into his compassionate personality, was a prophet who delivered multiple messages in many different settings during his 40 years of ministry. This book is a collection of a lot of his messages, um, you're going to see some of them are, are, are kind of self-contained. But, but over 40 years, he preaches these messages. They're not chronologically arranged. Get over that. It's not going to be chronological. They're put together, though, in, in, a, in a sequence that theologically develops. Um, while Isaiah was a part of the royal family, if you'll remember, Isaiah had access to the king, Hezekiah, and probably because he's mentoring Hezekiah, it's why Hezekiah actually has a revival because Isaiah's uh, discipling him. Isaiah is part of the royal family. Jeremiah is a part of the priestly family. His father, Helkiah, is a priest. And if you go back to 2 Kings, you'll read the story where Josiah is the king and Helkiah, Jeremiah's dad, finds the book of Deuteronomy that had been lost at the temple. Um, I, you all lose your Bibles here at the church. They're all behind the counter over there. Go get them. But, but, I mean, this would be like we're at the church and nobody can find a Bible. Helkiah the priest, Jeremiah's dad, finds Deuteronomy. He brings it to a couple people. They read it, and eventually they say, we got to take this to Josiah. Josiah reads it, and he says, oh, my word, we've got to straighten our act up. And he leads a revival. He restores the temple so that it will function. And, and Isaiah is this anthology of this priest, and it's his collected messages that are organized twice, okay? He preaches all these messages. God tells he and his friend Baruch, um, his secretary, to write them down. And at one point, because nobody's responding, the king throws them in a pit, grabs all of the written down messages, and burns them. Jeremiah gets out of prison, and God says, write them down again. So these, Jeremiah has been written twice, Um, because God really wanted us to have it. Um, His friend Baruch, who's his secretary, there's archaeological evidence that he's a real guy. These are not made-up stories. This is real. Um, This little signet ring, um, there's two of them that have been discovered, one in 1975, one in 1996. Some debate over over that, but the final conclusion is this is legitimate. Um, Jeremiah's secretary, who's writing a bunch of this stuff down, helping him collect all these messages, we have a, a seal from this guy. Two other people in the book, Gedaliah, who's, who's the, the person that the Babylonians put in charge after the last king is taken captive into Babylon. Um, Gedaliah is actually murdered pretty quickly, but there's a seal from Gedaliah and another guy um, named Jehuchel, and, and we have seals of these guys mentioned in the book. 
There's archaeological evidence of the legitimacy of what's going on here. Who's listening to all of this? The original audience of Jeremiah's messages was the southern kingdom of Judah after the Assyrians had taken the northern kingdom of Israel and scattered them among the nations. Again, this is 150 years after Isaiah. And Isaiah is basically saying, look what God did to the northern kingdom. He's going to do that to you. Well, now for Jeremiah, it's already happened. Let me put it together on a map for you. This is kind of the map of the Near East, the, the coastal area there by the Mediterranean. That's where Israel is. All the major powers are up there in the north, down in the um, bottom left corner of the screen. That's Egypt. So the northern powers, Assyrian, Babylon, they're always battling with Egypt, and, and Israel is the battleground. Well, what has happened is the Assyrians, when they are in power, they are going to come down to the northern kingdom of Israel. Its capital is Samaria. Sometimes it's called Israel, sometimes Ephraim, sometimes Samaria. They come down there, and in 722, the Assyrians scatter the northern kingdom. They just take them away. They don't exist anymore. Uh, They were basically spreading them out among all the other places they had conquered so that they couldn't regather themselves and rebel. The Babylonians eventually come into power, and in 612, they defeat the Assyrians at the Battle of Carchemish, and the Babylonians are gone. Now the, the, the Assyrians are gone. Now the Babylonians are in power. The Babylonians are going to come down to Jerusalem, the southern kingdom, and this is what's happening in Jeremiah. And in three different waves, the Babylonians are going to take care of the southern kingdom. In 605, they're going to deport a lot of their leadership, including Daniel. In 598, they're going to deport another group, including Ezekiel. And then in 586, the conclusion of this book, they're going to destroy Jerusalem, burn it to the ground, and burn the temple. Um, In your mind, 722 and 586, if you're going to understand the Old Testament, you should really understand. The Assyrians take out the northern kingdom, 722 B.C. The Babylonians take out the the southern kingdom, Assyrians, northern kingdom, 722. Babylonians, southern kingdom, 586. That should be part of just the structure. And, And then the prophets are going to fit all into this. So, when was all this written? Okay. Jeremiah's life is well documented from all these biblical references. His ministry began in Josiah's 13th year when he was a young man. Jeremiah is probably 20. Josiah is probably 21. His ministry continued through the 11th year of Zedekiah, four kings later, the last king of the southern kingdom of Judah. He prophesied in Jerusalem, but after Gedaliah's murder, he fled to Egypt with some of the people. That's talked about in Jeremiah 43 and 44. Tradition says that he was later transported to Babylon when the Babylonians invaded Egypt and took some people captive. So he prophesies in Jerusalem. Once Jerusalem is sacked, he, along with some others, escaped to Egypt. He doesn't want to go, by the way, um, because he's been telling the people, surrender to Babylon, go into captivity, then God's going to bring you back. But they won't let him do that. They take him down into Egypt, but he probably ends up in Babylon anyways. Jeremiah was written to provide a clear evidence that the nation of Judah had sinned and was deserving the judgment of God. They had no excuse The Babylonian invasion was the hand of God. Their judgment by the Babylonians was the hand of God. It also showed that even though God had a great future for Israel, the current generation would have no part in it. The repeated message is this. You're the people of God, and God has a great plan for his people, just not you guys. 
We need to be careful that that's not the message God's sending to us. <laughs> because we're forsaking him, we have other allegiances, we're digging our own cisterns, we're dependent on what our hands have made. If that's our priorities, then God is not going to have a place for us. But the, the, the primary message is this. The Babylonian invasion is the hand of God. And, and I feel it in my voice already. It's pretty harsh. The Babylonians are coming, and it's your fault. So let me give you a little bit of kind of how this is arranged, and then I'm going to walk you through it uh, pretty quickly. Here's, here's what's going on in the book. Most of the book is judgment messages. It, it begins, the, the first half of the book, 29 chapters, is the judgment of Judah and Jerusalem. The second half of the book is going to have the judgment on other nations. The first half ends with the judgment of Jerusalem, and the second half ends with the judgment of Jerusalem. Because, again, it's not chronological. You get to this judgment of Jerusalem, then a bunch of things, then the judgment of Jerusalem again. The one thing that doesn't fit that parallel structure the anomaly is the one little bit of hope, and it's called the new covenant. We'll get there. But before we get there, we've got to get to some judgment. Here's, here's how I, I tried to organize this on the chart. Chapter 1 really is an introduction to the book. It's a genuine introduction that gives you a feel for here's what's going on in the book. God calls Jeremiah. He tells him you're going to give a message of tearing down. Um, it's going to be harsh, and here's what I want you to say to the people. If you read chapter 1, you get a feel for the book. If you go to the end, chapter 52, you get the conclusion of the book, Jerusalem is destroyed. Again, the first half of the book, judgment on Jerusalem and, the, and Judah. The second half of the book, the judgment on these, all these other nations. Because there is this question of why would God use the other nations to judge his people? This is the question of Habakkuk that we'll eventually get to. In the middle, I've got that center section there. That's the new covenant. That's where God says, but I've got a plan. And it doesn't depend on your faithfulness. I'm going to take care of the internal obedience. So what's the message? Here's my long sentence. Jeremiah, a prophet who was rejected by his people while he lamented over their sin and the judgment it brought, preached against the sins of the nation of Judah and its capital city, Jerusalem, focusing especially on the leaders with whom he was in constant conflict, kings, prophets, and priests. And he announced that judgment would come on the nation through the Babylonians who would take them into captivity because of their failure to keep the covenant, but also prophesied that the restoration would occur because of God's faithfulness in bringing about a new covenant, including the judgment of the pagan nation, second half of the book, in order to encourage the exiles to remember that the Lord still cared for them. The Babylonians are going to judge. 162 times Babylon is mentioned in this book. And if you don't think that's hard to hear, it would be like me saying, Putin's going to judge us. And you're just like, whoa, <laughs> that can't be. <laughs> the, the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, the evil empire, yeah, they're a boiling pot up in the north getting ready to be poured down on you. And the judgment's going to be on Jerusalem. Listen to this. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The Lord says, and by the way, this is speaking to the armies of the Babylonians. Cut down the trees and build siege ramps against Jerusalem. The city must be punished. It is filled with oppression. That's what he says to the army of the Babylonians. Hey, you guys, this is, this is, these are my people, but they are so far from me. They need judgment so badly. Cut down the trees and build a siege ramp and go get them. Um, 
in Jeremiah 7 through 10, it's part of the readings I give you. Those, those four chapters, the whole four chapters is one big message. It's called the temple message. It starts this way. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Jerusalem who come through these gates to worship the Lord. And for four chapters, he's preaching the messages I'm telling you about. You're forsaking God. You're digging your own cistern. Judgment is coming. Um, no one, no wonder nobody liked him. Um, he stood at the, he stood outside the doors of the temple and preached these messages of judgment. So when the priest, Peshur, son of Imur, the official in charge of the temple of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things, he had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put in stocks at the upper gate of Benjamin at the Lord's temple. Yeah, they beat him. They put him in stocks. They're going to later on bring him out. They're going to throw him in prison. Then they're going to put him um, in a well. Um, but Jeremiah is pretty creative in all this. And I, again, I'll get to some more of this, I think, with Book of Micah. The next day when Peshur released him from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, the Lord's name for you is not Peshur, joy on every side. The Lord's name for you is terror on every side. <laughs> I mean, that, that happens in the prophets all the time. They're making all these word plays on the names. Um, look in your study Bible in the notes. It's, it's, it's really amazing. Um, listen to this story. <laughs> this, this one is amazing. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent to him Peshur, son of uh, Melchiah, and the priest Zephaniah, son of Manasseh. They said, inquire now of the Lord for us because Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is attacking us. Perhaps the Lord will perform wonders for us as in times past so that he will withdraw from us. The king sends a message to Jeremiah and says, hey, do you think the Lord's going to protect us from Nebuchadnezzar, the king? You think he's going to protect us like he's done in the past? But Jeremiah answered him, tell Zedekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I'm about to turn against you the weapons of war that are in your hands, which you are using to fight the king of Babylon and the Babylonians who are outside the wall besieging you. And I will gather them inside this city. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a mighty arm in furious anger and in great wrath. (laughs) All your weapons, you know what? They're going to break through. They're going to grab those weapons. They're going to use them on you. And you know what? The reason why is because I'm fighting you because you're no longer on my side. You have forsaken me. You're no longer representing me. I wonder if that's a message for the church these days. Is the church representing and doing? Because that's what Israel was supposed to be, a witness to God in the world. The church is supposed to be a witness that says, hey, we're the people of God and we love well. We love him. He's a priority. We find living water in him. Jeremiah, I'm just going to summarize this. Jeremiah is so creative. He, he, he does some things, and the Lord tells him to do these things. Um, but he takes a, um, a sash, kind of a, a decorative belt that's really pretty and precious. He takes that, and he goes by a river. We don't know what river exactly it is. And he buries it for a, a while. Then God tells him, go dig that thing up and put it on. And then it's all rotten, and it's all gross looking. And he walks around, and he goes, hey, Israel, this is what God thinks of you. You were precious to him, but now you're worthless to him. Um, He's very creative. He he tells this story to the king uh, at one point, and he said, all the people who are going to surrender to the Babylonians and God takes them away, he's going to protect them while they're away because they're the good figs. 
um, you know, he, he's a good apple. He, that's what he's saying. He, they're the good figs. God's going to bring them back. But you, Zedekiah, who were trying to stand up on your own strength and make alliances with the Egyptians to stand up against the Babylonians, you're bad figs. And you know what? You're rotten and, and you're not worth keeping around. And you're not going to be kept around. Uh, Jeremiah is really prominent in the, um, in the New Testament. He's not quoted a lot, even though Jeremiah is um, the largest of the prophets, um, by far, actually. Um, Jeremiah is 5.2% of the Old Testament. Um, but he's not quoted a lot. <laughs> Anyone know why? His message is pretty negative. But when he is quoted, it's pretty significant. Jesus quotes Jeremiah. Um, in the temple message, Jeremiah says this, has this house which bears my name, remember he's standing outside the temple, has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. When Jesus goes to the temple, he entered the temple courts. He began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, uh, he said to them, my house will be the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Um, Jesus quotes Jeremiah and says, you guys are like them. And that's not just, oh, you've made this a den of robbers. He's saying, you're like the Jeremiah generation. No wonder they wanted to kill him, just like they wanted to kill Jeremiah. Standing up for the Lord was not popular in Jeremiah's time. Representing the Lord was not popular in Jesus's time. And I'm wondering what it's going to look like by the end of my life. How popular it'll be to follow the Lord to find in him living waters? Or will I just find some cisterns that I, I, I dig for myself? Um, there is a message of hope in Jeremiah, though. It comes in two different forms. Um, one form is there's a limit on how long they're going to be in captivity. Jeremiah 25. The word came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Joash of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So Jeremiah the prophet said to all the people of Judah, to all those living in Jerusalem, for 23 years from the 13th year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, until this very day, the word of the Lord has come to me and I have spoken to you again and again, but you've not listened. <laughs> I preached for 23 years to you guys and you have not listened. Therefore, the Lord Almighty says this, because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar. Look who his servant is now. His servant is Nebuchadnezzar, um, king of Babylon, declares the Lord. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and scorn and an everlasting ruin. I will banish them from the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of the bride and bridegroom, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. They, the whole country will become a desolate wasteland. All these nations will serve the king of Babylon. That's pretty negative, but they'll only do it for 70 years. That's the hope. It's only going to last 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of Babylonians, for their guilt. After 70 years, they're going to be judged. He's going to go on to say this. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this land. They're going to get punished. And after 70 years, I'll bring you back. This is fulfilled literally. It lasts 70 years. I can count it three different ways. I can get it 60, 70 years from 605, 598, and 586. I don't care how you slice it, it's going to be 70 years. And you know who knew this? 
Daniel. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler of the Babylonian kingdom in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord and pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting and the sackcloth and ashes. Daniel understands it's going to be 70 years. Folks, this is just my opinion. But all the prophecies I see fulfilled in the Old Testament are fulfilled literally. The ones that are still to come, I think they're going to be fulfilled literally. And that's not going to be good news. (laughs) There's a message of hope here. But the biggest message of hope comes in that new covenant section, okay? Uh, This is Jeremiah 31. And by the way, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 should be just roll off your lips. Oh yeah, new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. It should... John 3, 16, Jeremiah 31, 31, 34 should be part of your vocabulary. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though as a husband to them, declares the Lord. I was faithful, but it's not going to be like that covenant because they weren't faithful to it because they couldn't keep it. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I'll forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. The new covenant is new in the sense that it's internal. It's no longer external regulations. And Jesus is the one who inaugurated the new covenant And the internal part of it is the ministry of the Holy Spirit within us. We don't need a temple. We don't need the Ark of the Covenant. We have the Holy Spirit within us so that we we know what we're supposed to do. It's called conviction. Unless you're grieving the Holy Spirit, unless your spirit is is seared. And, And the New Covenant, the longest quote in the New Testament is a quote of Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Um, Jeremiah is not quoted a lot, but the longest quote is that passage, and it's applied to Jesus. Here's what the author of Hebrews goes on to say. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Why does he inaugurate this new covenant? So we can really serve him. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that, he, um, now that he has died as a ransom to set us free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Jesus Christ is the inaugurator of the new covenant that is not external, it's internal. God has obligated himself to fulfill a bunch of promises. Unfortunately, we have to participate in that to reap the benefits. And we can't do it on our own. That's why there's a new covenant that gives us the power to do it through the power of the Spirit. So what do we do with this? Where do, where do we go? Um, what am I going to say here? Where does this fit? This is a clear example of a prophetic ministry that was truthful, passionate, obedient, and unsuccessful. Response is not the measure of success or of faithfulness to God. Jeremiah did what he's supposed to do for 40 years. Maybe the longest prophetic ministry that we have. No one responded. Success is not the measure. 
It's a sample of the emotional ups and downs of a life filled, um, of a life of one of God's servants. You know what, if you really knew what was going on around you, by the way, it, if I were to ask everybody in this congregation to stand up and just share what's going on in your life and your family, all of us would be in tears. You're not alone. In the midst of dark days, judgment, and a lack of response to God and his word, the Lord still has a plan that he himself will accomplish, and that gives us hope. God will accomplish his plan, even working with the likes of me. So what should we believe? God will judge unbelievers, and he will discipline believers. God's serious about this. God has a plan to bring restoration of his rule by his son through an eternal work of the Spirit, and that gives his people hope. But folks, sin is serious. Salvation is a work of the Spirit pointing us to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Sin is serious. So turn from sin, repent, embrace God's grace, and live for him. Sin is serious. And Jeremiah, that's a whole book about it. And he says, you may think you're God's people and you have some kind of special protection. But if you're not dedicated to him, if you're not finding the living water in him, you're digging your own cisterns. You're taking protection in what your hands have made. Then you're going to reap the judgment of God. So be willing and prepared to stand against the societal slide away from God. Hold your ground based on the truth of God's word. It's not going to get easier, folks. It's going to get harder. Don't be shocked by rejection or persecution. So what are some next steps here? Make the new covenant promises a part of your overall biblical worldview. Understand that God's promised all these great things. We couldn't pull it off, so he gave us a new covenant. And the new covenant is, I'll take care of it by making it internal. Thank you, God. (laughs) His wisdom, his love, his grace is what brings all of the promises that he has for us. Ask yourself where you've grown deaf to the word of the Lord. An entire generation for 40 years never heard what he said. Jeremiah very unpatriotically encouraged the nation to surrender to the Babylonians. Is there a place where you need to surrender to the discipline of the Lord? Time to get serious about following the Lord. Um, This morning, we have someone who's serious about following the Lord. Uh, Levi Pittman is going to get baptized. I'm going to ask Jim and Levi uh, to come on up here. Um, it was great when I was meeting with Levi in my office a few weeks ago, and um, I asked him why he wanted to get baptized, and he looked at me like I had lost my mind, and he said, because I want to obey the Lord. <laughs> uh, it was um, one of the best responses I've ever heard. Um, and, and as he's being baptized, you're going to see, as his dad baptizes him, And I'm curious to see if his head, because Levi's so tall, bangs the back of that baptistry. Um, As he he gets baptized, his identification is going to be with the death, burial, and then coming up out of that water, resurrection of Jesus Christ to bring him new life. And he wants you to know that he is identifying with that new life in Christ. And that his pledge is to walk faithful to him whether he's successful or not, faithful to him for the rest of his life. Jim. It is a joy as the parent of adult children to see how they have lived out their life in Christ. 
for Levi, this decision to follow him in baptism has been a thoughtful process with many questions. Even this morning, telling us a little bit of the process we weren't even aware of that he went through. Uh, so now you've come to this point and uh, you decided to follow the Lord in baptism as a public proclamation of your desire to live your life in Christ. Have you placed your trust in Jesus Christ? Yes. All right. Well, then I baptize you. It's my pleasure to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Buried in the likeness of his death. Raised to walk in newness of life. As, as Levi dries off a little bit, would you stand? Let me pray for him. And then we're going to sing a couple of songs. Father, I thank you for the Pittman family and the legacy of faith that they have that's far-reaching. Father, I pray that as uh, Levi continues to grow and mature in his relationship with you, that would you, you would use him in significant ways, in special ways. Um, just like you called Jeremiah from the womb, you've called Levi, and you've got things for him to do. And I pray that he would be faithful to do that. I pray that we as a community would support him in that. Father, we're thankful for his obedience to you, his identification with you, and we pray that um, his life would bring glory to you. And we ask that all in Christ's name. Amen.